the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, thank you for joining us uh, in another episode of uh, Let Us Reason. I'm your host, Al Fadi, and uh, we always welcome uh, your uh, interactions with us. And thank you, uh, of course, uh, as always, for your support. Uh, because of that, we are on the air for the third season now. And uh, you can always go and visit our website, Sierra International, C-I-R-A International.com. And you can visit uh, our archive shows in there for the last uh, two seasons. And this is the beginning of our third season. And uh, as always, um, I uh, make every effort possible uh, to uh, bring in experts in the field of uh, Christian-Muslim uh, relations. And uh, we take uh, basically a um, look at different issues, pressing issues, especially in the field of apologetics, the- theology, and evangelism related to our Muslim people. I mean, as you know, if you've just joined us for the first time, I am a former Muslim myself, come from Saudi Arabia, and I became a believer in Christ 15 years ago. So that's why I have a heart for my people, and uh, that's uh, the purpose of my show to begin with. That's why we call it Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim Dialogue. Uh, because we want the door to be open. We want our Muslim seekers to uh, at least hear for themselves um, what is the alternative and why Christ is the answer uh, to anything, and especially uh, the giver of our eternal life. Uh, with me today, uh, an exciting uh, guest, basically, and he's a dear brother in Christ. His name is Dr. Dwayne Alexander Miller. And in fact, uh, I want to encourage you uh, to go to his blog. Uh, it is Dwayne, that's D-U-A-N-E, Miller, DwayneMiller.wordpress.com uh, to learn more about uh, this dear brother. But uh, Dr. Miller is a researcher and a lecturer in Muslim-Christian relations of the Christian Institute of Islamic Studies, and he holds a B.A. in philosophy. Uh, from the University of Texas at San Antonio, an MA in theology from St. Mary's University in San Antonio, a diploma in Arabic also uh, from the Kelsey Language Institute in Jordan, and uh, also he has a PhD in divinity from the University of Edinburgh, and um, in Scotland, of course. Uh, his doctoral research uh, was uh, in, a, in a very interesting field. It's the contextual theologies uh, basically proposed by Christian converts from Islam and uh, has to do probably, uh, I mean, I'll I make sure that Dr. Duane correct me, uh, primarily with issues of identity and many other challenges that converts from Islamic background will face. But I will stop right here. I would like for 
Dr. Miller himself to continue, give us uh, more about his bio. Dr. Miller, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Al. I'm very happy to be with you and uh, all of your listeners, whether Muslim, Christian, or, you know, uh, many of the people in the world are not really sure where they fall on the, the sort of religious and spiritual spectrum. Um, incidentally, uh, this is not in, in my bio, which I sent to you, but I was not raised in a spiritual or religious household at all. Uh, you know, a lot of people maybe aren't fully convinced of their family's religion, but they kind of know the basics and the you know, basic beliefs and basic practices. Uh, I didn't go to church as a kid. I didn't know that Christmas was related to the birth of Jesus. I didn't know that Easter was related to the, the resurrection of Jesus and history. Um, you know, I thought Christmas was Santa Claus and gifts, and I thought Easter was, uh, you know, uh, hunting for eggs and, and the Easter bunny and so on. And it wasn't until in my teens that a friend of mine named Aaron, which is a, a Hebrew name, means uh, the one who bears the light, Harun, as you know in, in Arabic, uh, invited me to church. And it was a little church that was meeting in a lady's garage, and that, that was my first exposure to the Christian message and uh, to the Christian community, and that's, uh, that's where I made a, a commitment of faith. So uh, you talked about being a convert to Christianity. I would say I'm also a, a convert to Christianity. I was probably about 12 years old when that happened, and uh, rather than coming from Islam, I was simply coming from no religion at all, which, as you know, in much of the secular world today, that's a whole lot of people. Amen, brother. Thank you so much for bringing this, because incidentally, yesterday I was talking to a Muslim seeker, uh, and um, he, uh, you know, as any other Muslim, uh, wasn't able to uh, comprehend what I meant by being born again Christian. And uh, I told him that you may meet people that you think they're Christians, but that doesn't mean they are. And obviously, in your case, uh, you didn't even ascribe yourself to be Christian to begin with. So, um, you know, sometimes uh, there is some misunderstanding in the mind of uh, my Muslim people. They assume Christianity is just another religion, and Islam came to abrogate it, cancel it, if you wish. And uh, we're, the hope is that once they begin to understand that really it's about a restoration of relationship and a renewal of uh, who we are in Christ, uh, maybe this will at least entice them to search deeper. So, uh, Dr. Miller, um, you're dissertation um, is is uh, either published or going to be published in a book, uh, if I understand it uh, from my uh, reading of your bio, and the book will be called Living Among the Breckage. Uh, and uh, can you give us um, a little bit more information about this book? And I know the full name is Living Among the Breckage Contextual Theology, Making and uh, Ex-Muslim Christians. What What is the purpose behind this book? What does it talk about uh, and or the focus of it, and uh, what do you hope that this book will help others uh, gain from it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the book was just recently published, uh, just about a month, <clears throat> about, about a month or so ago, so you can go on Amazon, thank you, or to any uh, bookseller. You can also go to the publisher's website. The publisher is WIPF in stock. WIPF is W-I-P-F, and stock is just S-T-O-C-K. Uh, and you can get that. The cheapest way to get the book is buy the Kindle version for $10 uh, on Amazon. So that's kind of what I recommend. Wonderful. Now, when I was working on my MA in theology, that was actually at a Catholic university. I come from a Protestant background. Um, but I was studying some of the early history of the Church, you know, those first centuries uh, when the Church was growing, 
it was struggling with a lot of issues, trying to bring in people from all sorts of di- different ethnicities. Of course, it had a kind of a Hebrew or a Jewish core, but very quickly it started to attract Romans and Greeks, the ancient Egyptian people, the Copts, who uh, we know mostly today as the Coptic Orthodox Christians, um, then eventually Persians, even in these early days Arabs were coming into the Church. So the Church was really struggling with a lot of these issues. Who are we? What does it mean? to go from being a little Jewish sect called the Way, which if you read the Book of Acts, that's what they were called, to being this kind of big multi-ethnic church, this new people of God. And, uh, you know, when you study this stuff, you find uh, major events happening in some key cities like Carthage, which is today in Tunisia, uh, Alexandria, which of course is in Egypt, uh, Antioch, which is in southern Turkey, Antakya today, Constantinople, which today is known as Istanbul, or really a neighborhood in Istanbul, uh, over by Fatah, and uh, that that area of Istanbul. And uh, so I started studying, and I thought, wow, I wonder what the Christian Church today in the 21st century is doing in those places where all of these big events happened in the early Church. And I found that, you know, some of them still have a small Christian population, like Alexandria or Antioch, Antakya. But by and large, um, you know, these places had been thoroughly uh, Islamized, uh, culturally, linguistically, and uh, that, that was really the beginning of my interest in, in Islam. And I thought, well, I really want to understand how that happened, why that happened. And uh, later on, that's when I decided to learn Arabic. And then later on, I, I also decided um, to uh, try to learn more about converts from Islam. When I moved to Jordan... I didn't really know that there were many converts from Islam. Uh, for many, many centuries, it was extremely rare to find any convert from Islam. It's only beginning in the 1960s with some movements like in Indonesia and then later in Iran and Algeria that you start having significant numbers. So I met a couple of people who were converts or secret believers, maybe, and I thought, well, this is fascinating. I want to learn more about these people. And I uh, started doing some research, looking at some of the main articles uh, in different journals and so on. And I found a whole lot of people saying, uh, you know, these are scholars and missionaries and uh, preachers and so on. And, and they were saying, you know, when someone comes to Christ from a Muslim background, they should look like this. You know, Fatima should wear the hijab so she doesn't uh, offend her family. Or... People would say Fatima should not wear her hijab because that's a symbol that uh, you know that women are one step lower than men. Uh, or Fatima should continue to fast during Ramadan, but not in order to earn salvation, but just in order to um, uh, you know pray for the salvation of her people. And then other people would say no, Fatima should not fast during Ramadan because uh, she is not basing her faith on works anymore like she used to. She's basing it just on faith in Christ. So I thought, well, this is fascinating, but I don't want to read a whole bunch of, you know, uh, Westerners talking about what they think it should be like. I want to actually go meet these people, spend time with them. Uh, I want to eat with them. I want to hear them preach. I want to read their books and listen to their testimonies, read their poetry and their songs. And so that's what I did. I was fortunate to find one professor at Edinburgh who said, okay, that's a good research project, Dr. Elizabeth Coping, who's now retired. And uh, so that's what I did for a number of years. I was kind of just running all over the world and spending time with uh, Christians who had come from Islam, 
and just really trying to understand them. And then in the final chapter of my book, I sort of uh, try to bring together the different things that I learned uh, and, and under kind of a, a number of headings about, you know, baptism, the Church, uh, salvation, uh, things like this. Uh, so that's uh, that's the purpose of the book. So th- that's interesting, of course. And and by the way, if if you're joining us, you're listening to Let Us Reason. Uh, I'm your host, Alfadi, and with me here, Dr. Dwayne Miller, author of a newly uh, basically published book called Living Among the Breakage, uh, Contextual Theology, uh, make contextual theology making and ex-Muslim Christians, and it deals with uh, basically the um, kind of like the perceived theology of converts from Islam has to do with identity, so on and so forth. And uh, Dr. Miller, that's really an interesting thing you mentioned because obviously insider movement is one of those issues that are at the heart of all of what you mentioned, and hopefully uh, in in a future show with me uh, we can discuss this particular thing. But what were your findings? Uh, uh, You know, basically uh, when you did this research, and um, it's fair to assume the book is based on your research for the PhD, correct? Yeah, yeah. This is so. It, it's an academic book. Um, I'm working on a much more popular comparative book uh, for Islam and Christianity, uh, two different worldviews rather than two different religions or faiths or whatever. Uh, that's that's not going to come out until next year. So th- this is an academic book. That having been said, it's fairly accessible. Uh, and if you get the Kindle version and you get lost in chapter one and the academia, jump to chapter four and just read the case studies. Chapter four, five, six, and seven. Those are three case studies, four, five, and six, and then seven is my own uh, kind of conclusion. Um, so well, what did I find? Yeah. First of all, I, I spent uh, time with uh, a number of Arab believers uh, in the Middle East for security and safety reasons, as I'm sure you understand. I, I'm not able to disclose where exactly that was in the Middle East, but it was in the Middle East in a place where converts you know, routinely face uh, persecution and uh, alienation from their family, they probably would not be executed, but you you never know. Um, I spent time with Iranian believers in the diaspora in the U.K. and the United States, and I also read a whole bunch of autobiographies or or, uh, testimonies by different believers in those books. So that's kind of the the material that I studied. Um, Since then, I've spent time with other Christian communities that came from Islam, like in Turkey and Northern Africa, those are not included in the book. So, um, you know, in the book, of course, you have done a number of case studies. Now, those case studies were with any particular, uh, you know, cultural backgrounds. Uh, what I mean, uh, were they like uh, Middle Easterns in general? Were they Algerian, North African, uh, or is it a combination of all? So Chapter 4 is a case study of something that has got to be one of the most surprising things I've ever found in my in just in my adult life. <coughs> it was basically a church uh, of believers who came from Islam that was planted by accident. So I'll tell you just in brief the story. There was a, a pastor who came from a regular evangelical church. He was from a Christian family himself, and it was during a time of, of upheaval, and some of these poor Muslim villages uh, had a real t- a difficult time accessing just basic things that they really needed to survive. I mean, they were poor to begin with, 
but during this time of, uh, you, I mean, I'm sure you know what it's like, um, you know, transportation is difficult. There's all these security things. So it, it becomes much more difficult to just get stuff into these little remote villages. So he decided one day, uh, just uh, for him and his wife, to pack up some clothes and some food in the back of their car and to drive up to some of these remote villages and to just find the poor people and give it to them. And this really opened up a lot of people's hearts, and they started saying, now, you're, you're Christians, and we're Muslims. Why are you trying to help us? You know, we, we would never help you if you were in the same situation. And uh, so then they started saying, well, you know, if, if you really want to know the answer, we can sit down and look at Scripture, and we'll be glad to explain that to you. Some people said, yeah, you know, I'd like to do that. Other people said, no, I'm not really interested in that, but, you know, thanks for the beans and rice and oil and tea and sugar. So eventually, a number of people came to faith. A number of other people from their church got involved in that ministry, too. They got some outside funding once uh, an outside charity heard what they were doing and said, well, we can't do that as foreigners, but if you're doing that, we're going to support you. So it grew, and eventually a number of these different believers uh, from that village and other villages as well, they were gathered together. So for, for uh, believers who come from Islam, oftentimes the holidays, you know, it's one of the loneliest time, times for them. And many of these people come from uh, villages where there is no, no Christian presence at all. Uh, not, you know, not a Coptic church, not an Orthodox church, not a Maronite church, just nothing. So one of the lay leaders, a young lady, um, who was kind of taking care of these, this community herself, she's, she's a believer from a Muslim background too, but she'd been a, a Christian for some years. She said, I'd like to get these people together so they can kind of have a larger fellowship together, get to know each other a little bit, and not feel so lonely during the holidays, you know. So it was uh, during one of the Christian holidays, they all got together, and she said, okay, so let's just go around and everyone, you know, say your name. And now these people, they don't know each other, many of them. Uh, they're from different villages, and they're all believers who come from Islam, so that's a very dangerous uh, and precarious status to have. So she thought, she just thought, you know, they'd be like, my name is Ahmad. Hi, my name is Maida. Hi, my, you know, like that. But she was amazed by what happened. Uh, these people started standing up and saying their full name, where they were from, and then sharing their testimonies about how they had come to Christ. And it went all the way around the circle like this, and she was just amazed. And then they said, this is great that we're doing this during, you know, during the holiday, but we need to start getting together on a regular basis. So that was the birth of that church uh, in this uh, little area of, of the Arab world, of the Middle East. And, um, you know, I think, so that's what Chapter 4 is about. Uh, chapter 6, let's skip Chapter 5 for now. Chapter 6 is really about Iranians. Um, you know, way back in the 70s, there was the great... Iranian Revolution in 1979, and uh, just over the decades, uh, religious persecution, lack of human rights, discrimination against religious minorities, um, just, uh, poverty, corruption in the government, all these things have resulted in just large numbers of Iranians emigrating from Iran, and a lot of them, of course, end up in Europe and the States. So, I was surprised to find that most cities throughout Europe and the States are going to have an Iranian fellowship, even if it's a tiny one. 
Uh, some of them have actual proper churches with their own buildings. It's pretty rare, but it does happen. So I decided to spend some time with these Iranians and uh, try to understand, you know, what, what was attractive for them about the Christian faith, and also what are some of the struggles and difficulties uh, that they're facing as they seek to as they seek to create their own theology. I mean, theology it might sound like a really fancy word, but basically it's just from Greek it means God-knowledge. What do you know about God? How do you know this? What is God like? What does God want from us? Um, who are we? How do we relate to God? These are the basic questions of theology. Amen, amen. And I could relate really to uh, this, uh, uh, the birth of this uh, cang- congregation that you talked about, because uh, just about a couple of weeks ago I was also among uh, almost 35 um, uh, believers from a Muslim background, uh, also from an area that I'd like to keep a secret uh, uh, for their safety. But it was really a humbling experience, without a doubt, to be in such a large group like this. You know, usually you go to an Arab church and you find one or two, but uh, to have the entire congregation worshiping together come from that background, that's definitely an interesting thing. Um, Dr. Miller, um, in your experience, of course, uh, with the Christian ministry in the Arab world, um, what did you find most inspiring uh, to uh, Muslims to uh, come to Christ? Yeah, so we have a number of different studies and a number of different scholars who have done studies on why Muslims come to Christ, and I've got a section, I think it's chapter 2 or 3, where I kind of go through all the studies and put together a big list of reasons and so on. But I would say that the main thing um, is just really the love of God. Um, you know, the verse that I heard quoted most by by these uh, Christians from a Muslim background, it was not uh, anything about heaven and hell, it wasn't, you know, good theology from Romans or Galatians, which Protestants tend to quote a lot. It was from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Uh, that sort of message about love, it's about the love of God being unconditional. It's about God loving us so that we can call him Father, not just Lord, we call him Lord, not just Creator, we call him Creator, but Father. You know, that's that's a real thing that, of course, in Islam, you would not be able to call God Father because it just implies this closeness and this um, intimacy. And uh, that's precisely why Jesus did teach his disciples to call God Father, because that's what he was trying to drive home. The unconditional love of God, God that loves us, not just if we're good and obedient. I mean, in Islam, yeah, you know, you keep the Sharia and you're totally good, totally obedient. Yeah, you could probably say, yeah, God loves me. But man, you know, you you make a couple of mistakes, and uh, you know that that uh, relationship or that kind of positive standing before God is sort of out the window. It's gone. Um, uh, whereas in Christianity, you know, God loves us even while we're still sinners. You know, even when we are wrong, He still continues to love us. So I think definitely uh, just love, the love of Christ, the love of. Christians or towards each other and towards Muslims, like that little Arab village, right? Like, why are you helping us? You know, we're Christians. We love people. Even if they're not like us, we still show the love of God to them. So, I mean, for in my Amen. research, that's definitely, if you want one word, love. Amen. Well, you know, we have two uh, more minutes left, Dr. Uh, Miller, and it's an exciting topic, uh, of course, uh, and um, I am uh, also... Uh, 
uh, pleased that you are going to be able to join us uh, next week uh, to continue this fabulous discussion. And by the way, uh, you can add one more number to this research because I myself was also uh, brought down to my knees when I heard love your enemies and pray for those uh, who persecuted you. That was the uh, nail that sealed the coffin for me, <laughs> literally. Uh, the old uh, is dead and uh, the new uh, is alive now. So uh, it is definitely uh, a new concept for people from a Muslim background to understand that there is a relationship with this God that we grew up fearing and terrified of. And uh, we can dare to call him father. And, and what a humbling experience that is. Uh, Dr. Miller, um, when we come back next week, uh, I would love for us to continue along the line of these discussions about challenges uh, also related to Muslim converts. And so thank you so much for making the time for us uh, uh, this week. And uh, if you're joining us uh, today, uh, you're listening to Let Us Reason. I'm your host, Al-Fadi, and uh, with me uh, is uh, Dr. Dwayne Alexander Miller, and you can always go to his blog to know more about his work. Uh, it is Dwayne, D-U-A-N-E, Miller, DwayneMiller.wordpress.com. Until we meet again next week, have a blessed weekend. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.